Greetings, my friends. It is Uncle Mike and Roz Ben, and we are here for episode number 10, Mystic Ephrata. Roz, how are you today? Thankful, man. Thankful. Still processing, though. Still processing. And what are we processing? Mystic Ephrata. Because oh. this past weekend, we all met up in Ephrata and went to the Ephrata Cloister together, and it was a wild time. And like all good mystical investigations for every question which was answered, nine more appeared. Yes. Because all I know is we came out of our tour of the Ephrata Cloister, and I just had a sense, I don't know if you had the sense, but I had a sense that not everything was adding up. Oh, man. Now, the mathematics was incalculable. Well, the way it was presented, the mathematics was like, hold up. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more, uh, you know, cloaked in a veil than what was revealed. So, so I definitely agree. So let's let's start this way. So just to bring everyone up to speed, why don't we why don't we say what the effort of cloister, or at least what we're told the effort of cloister is or was? Right. So, from what I was able to put together before I reached and before I did a little more research. Uh, you had Kelp and the Society of the Woman of the Wilderness come here, but that they were a celibate order. And they really weren't, you know, they were like living in caves, even though they had this uh, 40 by 40 lodge. A lot of them dwelt in hermitage or like in quietude in these meditation cave outcrops in the Wissahickon. And you know, they weren't able to acclimate to that on top of the fact that they were celibate so that the society, the woman of the wilderness more or less died off, particularly when Kelp passed. Then you had uh, a couple of the remnant, Christopher Witt being one, but then uh, Conrad Matai, and who was the other Conrad? Uh, Conrad Beisel? Conrad Wright. So Conrad Weissel came here from Germany, supposedly looking for kelp. The kelp had already passed. And through a series of encounters and experiences, one of them being with, I think, Conrad Matai, and maybe even Christopher Witt, he was inspired to go west and establish Ephrata, which was supposedly the first Rosicrucian order that was able to like survive and plant a generational seed in the colonies. So the, the cloister is currently like in contemporary times, it's like a, 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 a historical um, destination. Like we went there, we went to the cloister and we took a tour. Now you knew we were going to do that. What was your expectation and what you were going to see and what did you see? Did it line up? Well, <clears throat> I saw no mention of the Order of the Rosy Cross. None and whatsoever. That, yeah, that's not really what's highlighted is that uh, the cloister was the foundation of uh, like the, what they call them, uh, Saturday Baptists, you know? Right, right, like right. These uh, 
Christians who honored the Sabbath. So I guess that's like the, the in the earlys, the Church of the Brethren. And, mm -hmm. uh, are those the Anabaptists as well? That would all kind of fall underneath that umbrella from the way I understand it. From right. the way I understand it. And like that was kind of like the history they told us of, of Bicel. But when we got there, like I know when we went to um when we went to the cave, when we went to the Wissahickon and we walked through it, it was it was, you know, it was it was a park, but it was still like very wilderness. And what we saw was the only reason you knew that it was the 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 monk's cave is because there's a marker there. <laughs> Um, but then when we went to Ephrata, like it was an entire campus. Yes. Yes. A rolling campus. On it was a roll there were at least still standing, like probably what, like maybe 10 buildings. Yes. I would, I would guesstimate. And it was right off of route 322. Right off of route 322. Right, right. off. Of so that, that is a numerological code in which the synagogue of Satan identifies themselves. Revelations chapter three, verse 22. And uh, that, you know, that's the skull and bone number, mm -hmm. right? A lot of things happen on March 22nd. And so for the close cloister to be right on 322, that kind of struck out to me. And, yeah, and the fact that Ephrata is a mount, I didn't know that. You know that Ephrata is a high point in that Lancaster area, and that you know it's referred to as like Mount Ephrata, and the heights of it is significant to the people in that area. Yes, it is, and I don't know if you noticed this is um, because it's it's difficult to really appreciate topography in like our kind of modern world, but I think it's a little bit easier in the, the less developed area of, of Ephrata than compared to like, you know, your, your, your modern city. But Lancaster with the majority of, of the population of Lancaster is, is in the valley. That's where Lancaster City is. That's where like kind of like where I live. That's where Route 30 goes through. But Ephrata, as you said, was like right when you're starting to really get into the mountainous areas and you've got, you have amazing vistas. You can see down, like maybe once you got on 222, you could look down and you can see the entire valley. When you're in Lancaster City, you don't appreciate that, but that was definitely had to have been part of one of the reasons as to what of the significance of why that location was selected. Yeah. Um, but I want to go back. I want to go back to the 322. 322 then also goes right through Mount Gretna, which is where we have Governor Dick's Tower, and it goes all the way into um, the Susquehanna River, and it meets right where the replica of um, of uh, the Statue of Liberty is found within the river. I've always found that to be very significant as well. I would um, definitely agree. <laughs> and, but, but the whole thing, like, you know, when you go into like this town and the town kind of feels like uh, it's 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 a snapshot, particularly the couple of blocks which lead up to Africa Cloister. It's a snapshot from another period of life. You know, it, like the, the world doesn't look like that anymore. And then you go into this effort of cloister. And what I what I was most struck by was the idea of how it was gated. Like there was that wall which surrounded the overall campus. And then within it, there is another wall, which is where the cemetery was, which I found very, very um, there are a lot of things which I found suspect within it. But just it had this this. Uh, tabernacle-esque type of environment where you've got like the 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 outer chamber and then you got the holy of the holies within i don't yeah. know if you if, if like you it did have like a 
inner sanctum uh, area within area, court within court layout. The cloister did, absolutely, with uh, Beisel's house being centered. His house was centered. So, so a couple of things before, because I know you've got a bunch of slides, which, which, which you're going to go walk us through, particularly filling in maybe some of the gaps between what was not mentioned about the Rosicrucian connection um, when the publicly offered tour, and then what is then offered within like the Rosicrucian lore and from within their own research, what they tell us about it. Um, but a couple of things I wanted to point out, like what I thought, and I'll begin with with that where the the graves were, um, was 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 one the layout of the graves where there was a large section, and it wasn't like very clearly defined as to not have any gravestones, but the entire center of it had no gravestones. So I found yeah. that like that was like okay, well, why was that? What else was going on here? the wall which was the inner sanctum which created that what was very unique to me was the, it was a stone wall it was a very very like you know well-made masonry wall and on the bottom of it where the wall met the earth there were arches there were probably yeah. like 10 arches we saw <clears throat> and you know just trying to be like logical you know what, what was the purpose of it you know one of the questions which was brought up by jesse was like how deep does this go you know, are these archways? Is there something beneath this? You know, what was going on there? I found that very unusual. And then looking at the headstones, I would say there's probably about 100 headstones there. And the majority of them were, were weathered away. You could not read clearly the names and the dates that were on there. But you could make out a couple of unusual things. The two unusual, which I want to bring up right now, which kind of jumped out was one was there was a skull and crossbones. And then the second one was there was a Masonic hand grip handshake occurring on one of them. Two things that probably like according to the the effort of cloister narrative, like you wouldn't expect to see those there. Right. Now, something else that stood out and when you just really took in all of the names of the ones like the families at the cloister and factor in the whole idea that the seventh day Saturday Sabbath Christians who honor the Sabbath. You could tell a lot of those families were probably Sephardic and or Ashkenaz families, crypto Jews, mm -hmm. you know, coming to the Americas. Like that is like, if you want to say the whole political uh, dynamic with Europe that motivated them like, you know, coming here, quote unquote, seeking religious freedom, you could tell uh, that whatever they were practicing at the cloister, it was probably some version of crypto Judaism, you know, uh, uh, undercover Judaism of the Saturday Sabbath being, even though they say that they're Christians, you know, that being the most obvious, you know. That being but, the most obvious. But, most but the names of the families, a lot of the names in the fam of those families in the cemetery, you could tell they were either Sephardic or Ashkenazi rooted family names, you know. Hmm. That stood out to me as well. Yeah, yeah. There was, the, 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 the whole thing was, was, um, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll take a step back. Like we, we had the, the official tour and there's an official tour guide. And so 
I'm just going to imagine what happens is like, if you're an official tour guide at a place like that, they more or less give you a script, like, you know, what, right. and you've given that presentation and like, you're giving the sanctioned version of, of, of history. And so one of the things which I found very interesting was, and, and maybe this is going to be, this is going to be more of my subjective opinion, but I got the impression from the tour guide, who's a lovely person, you know, um, that, they were like they 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 definitely were not holding Conrad Beisel in the highest of esteem. Like a lot of the things they were saying, what she was saying about Beisel was like, yeah, this guy was like this, and this guy was like that, and like everyone, he was a tyrant. Yeah, puritanical. He was, yeah, all of this sort of stuff. But then she also told us like, you know, oh, he wanted to go by himself and all the people followed him. And then he created all these tyrannical rules. And you're like, well, why would they stick around if he was so ty tyrannical? Like it, that didn't add up. And just her overall attitude talking about him was not, was not very uh, like supportive. Like he was quote unquote, the hero. Whereas at the same time, we're told that Conrad Beisel is, you know, I'm using hero as a metaphor here, but like, you know, he was the, he was the guy who started this whole thing. And now we're like kind of questioning him. And right. then she kind of worked in, there were two more, there were two things that really jumped out was one, um, the, the, the cloister itself was under the control of the, whatever that religious order was that continued to, to exist since Conrad Beisel's day in the early 1700s, like around 1939, I think it was, she said that they didn't want to, things got out, they ran into financial hard times or something like that. And then the bank purchased it. And then the bank took over and then the bank redid all of the buildings and the bank put out this history. And then in 2000, another history came out. And then they're like, all of this stuff, which we thought before, that's not true. But now we know this new history based upon stuff, which they found, they found just recently. And just like the whole thing did not add up to me. Yes. Yeah. I don't know where, I don't know what the truth may be. But I know that what they were telling us was there was more to this. There story. were layers. Yeah, it wasn't like they said untruths, but the complexity of what was going on in Africa, they you could tell they were definitely attempting to kind of masquerade it. It's like, I think we're in an age where kind of people know what it is. And they know the complexity, like how they were attempting to explain the uh, celibacy dynamics, how there was a men's house and a women's house, and there was the there was a laundry uh, house, but Faisal had that torn down because that's where they were, you know, getting busy, and you know <laughs> that's certainly what she told us, right? Yeah, exactly. But we we could see that there were so many other dynamics of human nature probably playing themselves out there that just makes the traditional story that they're telling it just seems implausible based on what we know of as human nature you know particularly with the complexity with the what were the Erdelic brothers the, okay. the the guys from virginia oh that was their name okay okay well let's go into the, the guys of virginia Eichland brothers, excuse me. The Eichland. I did not remember the name because I wanted to check into it. So why don't you, what, what did she tell us about the Eichland brothers? That they were, again, and that's a, another name that, that's, again, like, uh, sounds like a Ashkenaz 
name, family right. name, you know? So again, this is like what I was saying, when you look in the cemetery and you see these family names that even though they were Protestant Christian, right? They really seem like they were uh, crypto Jews attempting to create a scenario where they could practice a crypto Judaism and 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 a and a freeness, you know. Mm -hmm. But these Eichland brothers supposedly came from Virginia with prosperity, with abundance, and I think they were bankrolling the printing operation that was going on at Ephrata, and they and Beisel got got into conflict. Like maybe they were too worldly, bringing uh, business and prosperity too much into the equation of the lifestyle Beisel was trying to create. And they got expelled. It caused a schism and a rift within the community. And after, was it after Beisel passed that they came back and kind of, or maybe it was when Beisel was in a just kind of a elderly, weakened state they returned and kind of took over the cloister and built their residence at the top of the hill where they used to have like a communal worship. And, you know, it just uh, it sounded nasty. You know, the way it, like, you know, if you play it out in your movie mind, how this thing probably rolled out, it was, you know, a bitter internal conflict that, you know, was real seedy and shady. Uh, Definitely, definitely. Yeah. It, it, so, it, it, I mean, and you got to put, you, uh, and, and I'll, I'll fill in some of the background um, information for the folks who are listening at home. So you got the effort of Cloister, which is kind of like in the wilderness of Lancaster County. This is like the early 1700s. This is this is the story which we're told. And there were there were people who were living like, uh, uh, like New Worlders who were living in Lancaster, what we think of as Lancaster County at the time. It wasn't particularly well populated, but there were people who was here. And uh, Beisel sets up this thing up in Ephrata, but there were other there were other Europeans who were living in the area who were not part of the cloister. And then within this cloister, within this cloister community, there were like tiers. There were like you know there were the married folks who were the the lowest tier, and then you had the celibates who were like of a different tier, and they dressed differently. And so you've got all of that going on and you would think like typically, uh, or at least I would, that that this would be primarily like the, the, the top concerns would be maybe agricultural, like how are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? But that's not what this effort of cloister was. When you look at the history, when you look at the history, which we're told of the, the, the colonial time period, effort of cloister was immensely significant for printing for minting money. They were allowed to mint money. They made medicine. They told us the stories of how the medicines were made in the effort of cloister and they were shipped to George Washington. Like what and who more that was this effort of cloister? This wasn't just like a handful of like folks who were, who were trying to go in and live this communal lifestyle. There was like, this was an operation, an operation, which operation. had an immense amount of influence on this Absolutely. story which was unfolding. Absolutely. And so, and they have these like dioramas of what they said life looked like. And you could see like this very, very industrious looking printing press where it showed like the, the men in a certain outfit, like working the press 
and then it had like the men in the white robes who are over like overstanding them like you know looking at them doing their work with like maybe a ledger to make certain they're doing fast so we're told that was going on and that was going on sometime like you know in the in the 1700s during the revolutionary war and they were running their operation and then these these guys from from virginia show up and they say that they took up residence in the most important building of the cloister the cloister building which was on the top of the hill which was where everyone got to meet there were certain buildings which were segregated some for men some for women some for everyone and this was the communal worshiping center and and these guys were like yeah this is where we're going to go and um we're going to stay here we're going to take this up and there was an indication that the typical effort a cloister person did not like these guys from Virginia. And so the question is like, well, why did they get the premier spot? They were either their boss or they were their intimidators. And my guess is it wasn't an intimidator because it said they told us that the, the the folks that lived outside of the cloister but lived in the Ephrata area, like they were they were coming and going in the cloister. So if they saw that there were a bunch of a bunch of guys who came in and were taken over with hostility, they probably would have gotten some support. So my sense is like what you're saying, like they were the bankrollers, they were the boss, they were the ones who were calling the shots. What shots were they calling? Absolutely. So I, I think like you know, and and we're kind of and. We're gonna have a secondary. Uh, we're gonna have a secondary um, we're gonna uh, have a episode yeah. where we're gonna show all the footage of us walking all around uh, both the farm of which we were invited into of a private farm and then of the cloister. But I know that you have some slides. You went in a little bit deeper into the Rosicrucian aspect as it specifically relates to Rosicrucianism in general, but then also its role within the effort of cloister. Would now be a good time for you to bring us through that. Well, yeah, but before we transition, I do want to just comment, like how you say this thing was an operation, you know? Ephrata's place in history during the War of Independence, supposedly George Washington's troops faced a series of defeats, first at the Battle of Germantown, then at the Battle of Brandywine, in the Battle of Brandywine, under the guidance of Peter Miller, about 300 of Washington's wounded soldiers were given medicine and food from the effort of cloister, you know? And both Washington and I wanna say Jefferson spent time in, you know, rested, slept at the effort of cloister. Jefferson might be the nexus of the Virginian boys. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that might be another rabbit hole to explore at some point. But, you know, it is, it was a significant operation. Many of the Bible, early Bibles of the area, which we saw when we visited the Fry family, printed at the effort of cloister. They even mentioned that there was some, uh, book very important to the Mennonite community that was over 1600 pages long that they took a L on economically, but they still produced 1200 copies to distribute, you know? So yeah, man, the effort of Cloister was a serious operation. It wasn't just like some monks in white robes 
being celibate. It was a lot <laughs> deeper than that. And like you say, when one question was answered, 40 more questions came up. But I will say, so when we came home, right, we were both processing and you sent me an article that, yeah, man, I think answered a very important question. So the, the presentation which you're going to make reference to was something I discovered six years ago, and it is a um, Amorc Rosicrucian. You know, and I, 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 I define it that way. Like she's a member of, of the ancient mystical order of the Rosy Cross or all these different like, you know, uh, uh, groups claiming to be the official Rosicrucians. And, and again, like, you know, what is Rosicrucianism? But this is a presentation this woman put, uh, put together early 2000s. I think there's a date on it uh, on the front page of it. And you can still find on the on the internet on like a website called like OO Cities. I, I didn't even recognize that something from like the early, early days of the internet. It's got to be like 70 slides. And she goes through so much detail. So I went through that and that answered a lot of questions for me when I first started down this path with the Susquehanna River and Ephrata. But to be quite honest, I haven't gone through it since I haven't gone through it since since that time. And my understanding has changed considerably as more and more experience and information has shown itself. So I am quite interested and I'm quite excited to hear what you pulled out, looking at it with your eyes in this like, uh, what is it, July 2021? Like, what is it you're going to pull out and show to us today? Well, yeah, man. Uh... Let's see. Hopefully I got it. Let's see what we got here. You see my PowerPoint? I got it. Lovely. All right. So, you know, the thing with studying the Rosy Cross, there is no secrets with them, right? We've talked about that. In order for their magic to work, they have to be very transparent in what they deal with. So there is no secrets. But they definitely shroud everything they do in mystery that needs to be decoded, you know? And to be able to decode who are the Rosy Cross and what are they up to, you know? Uh, it's not easy. And really, the, and I would say there probably is no one way to decode them and like identify who they are, you know what I'm saying? It really does depend on your perspective and your relation to the Rosy Cross, I guess would, you know, have a large degree of influence of how you would identify them, right? So I'm going to kind of look at what we would say is the great mystery Philadelphia angle on who is the Rosy Cross, okay? But what inspired it was the article that you sent me. This is the name of it, the, the article you were just talking about. Bacon Secret Society, the Ephrata Connection. Okay. I want to explore this, but before we do, because we coming from the angle of the great mystery Philadelphia and recognizing that these cats are, are magi. These cats are magicians working some of the highest magi you can imagine. Okay. 
So I just want to pose a couple of questions before we even go down this rabbit hole <clears throat> to help shake this, okay? Is the first, if the omniverse is a gigantic magnetic mirror, which quantum physics has shown us it is, right? That we, whatever we, however we see the omniverse and whatever we do, the omniverse is gonna mirror that back and we're gonna magnetize that into our reality, right? So if the omniverse is a giant magnetic mirror, is there an enemy or is it enemy? Okay, that's one question we gotta ask ourselves. Also, we know we're 400 years out of J Jamestown. We're 400 years out of this sus Quahana spell that's been cast over us, right? And I'm gonna tell you these cats who've cast the spell, this, this spell has been rendered in accordance with omniversal law. This is why it's effective. This is why this spell is gone into 400 years, okay? And if I could kind of just summarize what that means to us, like right here, right now, 400 years into this. Through our use of free will and decision-making, which is the law of consciousness, we or ones of our bloodline have enacted historical events that have created our current state. And that's the law of cause and effect, as well as the apparent opposition facing us. It's the law of polarity. Continued polarized consciousness will augment apparent opposition. That's the law of gender and generation. And there comes a cycle of time when bloodline karma can be identified and reconciled. And the rhythm of that cycle is 400 years. And that is all in alignment with the omniversal laws of rhythm, correspondence, and vibration. So this is the time we're in. This is why we're able to see what the spell is and break the spell. Because we, hmm. we're at this 400 year junction you know, 1619 to 2019, two years, flip side, right? So I want y'all to keep this in mind. When we look at this one, now, that effort of connection, right? When you read about Rosicrucian history, written by Rosicrucians, or written by members who are in some way affiliated with it, uh, Manly Hall is a great example. It'll be a lot of fluff. It'll be a lot of like information that is semi-relevant, quasi-relevant, but not directly relevant. And then, you know, out of maybe four or five pages, there'll be one sentence that is just like, man, it you know, it explains so much. And there was one sentence in this document on the effort of connection that if you penetrate this one sentence, you can understand, overstand, like 
really fully who these cats are, what their operation is, what they're doing, and how it's really directly tied into the reality that we see. It'll explain so many quote unquote mysteries, you know? Uh, and that sentence is, democracy in America was the result of centuries of karmic causes helped silently along by the various groups sponsored by the great white brotherhood, okay? So the Rosicrucians are one order out of several sponsored by an even greater order referenced in this paragraph as the great white brotherhood. And what do they do? They silently, like inception, plant seeds of karmic causes that play out over centuries. So this really tells us ultimately the Rosa, Rosie Cross, Order the Rosie Cross, their timeline manipulators. Y'all who follow my research, you know what we deal with when we talk about the time. We That's one theme of we've been covering mystics of the 40th parallel, timeline manipulation, okay? But to bring it directly to the rosy cross, to bring it home to kind of like, like what, a, what, a, what karmic causes is shaping this reality now that the order of the rosy cross is silently influencing. Okay, we would have to say, who is Christian Rosencruz? And in the most causal and effective sense, he is a freedom fighter using omniversal law as his weapon. That's very important. We gotta know that. Like this is the first thing you have to know, that Christian Rosencruz is a freedom fighter using omniversal law as weapon. And guess what? Because of the karmic causes they have set in motion, omniversal law is on their side. You could even say they have about 400 years of the moral high ground still, as wild as that sounds, okay? But to fully overstand, fully overstand that, you gotta penetrate another mystery. Okay, this isn't a secret, but it is a mystery. And it's the mystery of Moorish Rome. Okay, and before I even get into this, I'm not coming at Moors. Moor is in my bloodline. How do I know? Because I'm in the karmic, uh, my karmic situation tells me the bloodline karmic causes knowing the rosy cross ultimate mission and intention i see where my bloodline is i know my bloodline and i see where we are and i see where the uh order of the rosy cross is so i have to know who i am in this right so i'm not talking about nobody i'm not claiming and recognizing i have a shared identity with okay 
but there is a legacy of Moorish Rome we have to account for. Going back to really the inception of Rome, okay? Where the, uh, what they call the Theban legions of St. Maurice under the banner of the black vulture, which you, know, you take it back to Kemet was Mut of Thebes, who was like the, which was like the capital of the black man in Kemet, so-called black man in Kemet, you know, uh, founded Rome. They were the, they were the mercenaries that the Imperial Roman generals in classic Rome won all their campaigns on and, you know, the Theban legions bankrolled a lot of Roman uh, expansion, okay? And St. Maurice was the patron saint of classic Rome. And there was a people in 476 who destroyed classic Rome. And who were those people? The Goths, the people who became known as the Slavic nations of Eastern Europe. They just, the Goths, they destroyed classical Rome in 476, who resurrected Rome in 800 AD. It was the Moors, Judeo-Christian Moors. Again, these Theban legions of Saint Maurice, Charlemagne the Great, resurrector of the Holy Roman Empire and the father of modern Europe. He was, he was Moor, okay? And so from 800 to 1200, the Franco-Moors led crusades against these same gods who destroyed classical Rome. And they gave them the birthright identity of Slavs. That's why their language is known as Slavic languages. And that's why when their countries were initially formed, they were like Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavakia because the Moors dating back from about 800 AD going all the way through to about 1300. Yeah, man, gave these ones the birthright identity of Slavs, okay? So uh, in 1200, you had the rise of the German Holy Roman Empire by, by these Moors, Otto I and his, his wife, Edith, you know? Saint Otto of Bamberg, he's this, this church figure was, is the man responsible for a lot of the churches we see in Europe that have the uh, black Madonna and, and Christ image, right? So when we see white Jesus in Africa today, what, what, karmic, what karmic dynamics put this thing in motion, okay? Yeah, man, this King Henry the fourth, I think, major enslaver of the Goths. He established the kingdom of Bohemia as a uh, vassal state. The whole economy, well not the whole economy, but a big part of the economy was about 
enslaving the Goths of Eastern Europe. This dude, Frederick, Frederick Barbosa, he made his fortune creating a trans-Italy slave route from the top of the boot of Italy down to the Mediterranean, okay? So this, this guy, Johannes Dictus, he made a, he, he uh, you know, expanded that trade throughout the Mediterranean. And the Moors, again, under the banner of St. Maurice, upheld the Vatican through all of this. The Habsburg family, the ones who opened the gates of hell at Hauska Castle. They were Moorish, okay? So I know I'm skimming real fast. I'm skimming real fast over this Moorish legacy, but this thing is real. These are the, what you would, if you go back to that original quote that I got it right here, the centuries of karmic causes that have set the stage for the birth of Christian Rosencruz, you know? And this is a big part of the mystery of, the, of, of America, okay? And, and how it's tied into Christian Rosencruz is through the one uh, historical story associated with him is called the alchemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz, where it, it spells out their mission and their intention, which is the beheading of the Moor. Okay. So here you see Charlemagne, that same Charlemagne I showed you. Let me see. Bam. This guy right here, right? Is, where is it? I'm close. Hmm. Is this guy here? The beheading of the Moor. This is the ultimate intention of Christian Rosencruz. But again, because the Gothic Slavs received so many hundreds of years of persecution from the Moors, and 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 to be totally honest, if we take this thing all the way back to its roots. It goes back to the clash of the Titans in Kemet, okay? This is why they use classical art. And you see like all the Greco-Roman gods included in the language of the Muses. These boys is taking it all the way back to the clash of the Titans where you had uh, these, I guess what you would call giant gods, the Titans, the Nephilim gods, Harishaph who was Baal, Set, Atum, Men, who was Apollo, Ptah, Kanum, right? These boys fighting uh, the Olympians, who were the Thebans, you know, and Kemet, who would be the upholders of Ma'at, okay? This thing goes all the way back to there, but that's for another discussion, right? We're going to- Can I ask you a quick question? Please, Mike. With that image which you just had, the beheading of, of Charlemagne, who is doing the beheading? Who do you think her name is? Are you familiar with the alchemical wedding of uh, Christian Rosencruz? Uh, 
not by character name. <laughs> okay, that's Virgo Luciferia. Thank you for making me mention that. This is Virgo Luciferia. She is the lead character in the alchemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz. Okay, and so uh, if we articulate alchemically what is encoded in the alchemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz, like what is the intention? It's all about dissolving the Israelite Moorish bloodlines of Europe, coagulating that bloodline into the nations of the Gothic Slavs to transmute the birthright that these Moors have being from Israel, like through lineage and thus switching place in world history and prophecy, okay? And so <clears throat> when we study the alchemical wedding, Christian Rosencruz, he's depicted as like this Christianized Jew, right? Who enters this kingdom and this kingdom is probably Bohemia, okay? So the king at the, uh, at this kingdom, he's about to be wed to this woman named Virgo Luciferia. But leading up to the wedding, there's a play. And in the play, uh, this box with a little girl on it, with a little girl in it, washes up on the shore. And they could tell because the box is covered in jewels that like this girl is like, she has some royal blood in her, right? So again, my feeling is this is Bohemia, which ultimately is like in this area, the land of what you would call the Western Slavs, right? And, uh, oh, all right. So to kind of just quickly summarize the, the, the play, uh, the girl grows up, comes of age. Apparently, that box came from this Moorish kingdom, right? And it was like she was the daughter of this persecuted king that or prince that had been kind of taken as a slave out of their original kingdom, right? And this girl was of his seed. She was able to get freed and uh, put to sea, led by Box back to her old kingdom. When the Moorish king heard about her, he went, well, actually, uh, not just the Moorish king, but she had a whole bunch of suitors. Like when people heard, like, oh, this queen is, uh, by birthright, she's the rightful heir of this area, right? The Moorish king plus a whole bunch of other suitors went to ask for her hand. So the, the Moor, when he approached it, it's like his rap game was super tight. Like he just, his words, his wordplay, his poetics, he just won her over, right? So she went back to his kingdom willingly. But this prince, there was a prince in the 
kingdom who felt like, nah, I'm the rightful heir to the throne. But uh, Virgo Luciferia, she, you know, I need her. So he goes, he wages war against the Moor, right? Gets Lucif Virgo Luciferia back. War between the, the Moorish nation and this other nation plays out. The Moors are defeated. They take the six highest no noble Moors and the executioner of the Moors. They take, so it's seven. They take seven Moors back to their kingdom. And they have the executioner, the, the Moors' own executioner, execute seven of them, behead them. They take the heads throw it in a vat and melt the head down into a, a solvent. And they, and they put that in one vat. They drain the blood from the bodies of, because then they, they themselves do kill the executioner, right? So they have seven heads of moors. They dissolve it into one vat. They drain the blood from the bodies of seven moors, put that in another vat, mix it together, and then serve it at the alchemical wedding of Virgo Luciferia. So that is the text, alchemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz. Okay, summarized. Check it out yourself. It's online. You have, you know, like there's no mystery. Uh, what's up? Okay. So Within can I ask you uh, before you please, move on like that? Please, so, so, right. So I, might, go back? I know I was going quick and there might be something I need clarification. So, so go, can you go back to the image, the 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 painting, the the of Virgo the, Luciferia? The, yeah, with the head. So the, the two questions I have. So she's not the one who did the beheading. No. It was the executioner. She's holding the head. Who's yes. whispering in her ear and why is her left eye the way it is? I got that's for you. That's for further decoding. Okay. You know, okay. I haven't. Uh, I haven't fully. I've I've decoded the sword and the head. You know, I've done some decoding with it, but there's more. I, I haven't fully gone down that rabbit hole. You know, but that Where is that image come from? That is that in conjunct angle you talk about. Yeah. It, like, exactly. Exactly. That's the Machiavelli angle. The Machiavelli angle, huh? There's a lot in this. There's a lot in this image of Virgo Luciferia, man. Who, uh, wh where is that, the, the, that image from? Like who painted that? When was that painted? That's a great question, man. That's a great question. I just did a Google search for Virgo and, found and that, I found that, that, that's a, it. I hadn't that, even gone down that rabbit hole too much, you know? All right. All right. So go on. I didn't mean to distract. Uh, no, to, no. Thank you, man. Look, and because like I'm going fast, I haven't really covered this uh, in a while. So if I'm if I'm, if I'm not clear on anything, definitely jump in, okay? Okay. So now, encoded within this alchemical wedding is what we would call the the magnum opus or the great work of alchemy, and it's a four step process. Negrito, albedo, citronitis, and rubido. And if I could just summarize what these of uh, four stages, how they play out in, right, those historic karmic causes of the Rosy Cross, okay? 
Negrito, Negrito, that's all about beheading the Moor and dissolving uh, Moorish sovereignty. And the way they would do it, they'd enter a region, create polarity, give one clan the premium weaponry so that they could take over that whole region. And then all they got to do is take out that one clan. So when you like South Africa and the Zulu are a great example, right? Where the Zulu are responsible for the great Infocane, the great disaster of South Africa, where they through, you know, different war technique and different weaponry that the traditional indigenous Bantu of them region was accustomed to through manipulation from the British took out all the different clans of the region. And then the Zulu, all, I mean, and then the British, all they had to do was take out the Zulu and they was running much of South Africa. It's the same with the Europeans here and like the Iroquois and who are also called the five civilized nations down South. You know, so up north, it would be like the Iroquois Confederacy. Down south, it was the uh, what they call the five civilized nations, you know. Uh, there's other examples, but that's, you know, Negrito, Albedo, the whitening. That's the col that's colonization scheme. That's Francis Bacon's colonization scheme and the whole science of eugenics of whitening uh getting the gothic slav blood to be the prominent bloodline of the nation through eugenics you know but uh that would actually evolve into the next stage which is citronitis right to make golden and that involved mixing in a, a, a specific alchemical formula, mixing with the indigenous just enough that you could get their prophetic birthright, but keep the albedo appearance. Okay, that's the process of citronitis. And I know y'all are like, damn, Ross, hold up. But I got some reason, you know, I'm going to come with some receipts. And then the last stage is, ah, Rubido. The last alchemical stage of the magnum opus is Rubido, which is to actually make red. And that will be fulfilled when the Gothic Slavs are living as more men in the new Jerusalem of Amorica and Moors will through their own free will identify as black descendants of slaves. Okay, so this is, you know, the magnum opus. All right, I kind of ran through this. This is, uh, yeah. Now, let me show you some examples. Y'all know y'all like, damn, Ross, you tripping. But no, let's start. I'm going to just give you a couple, show you like, nah, this, this thing is real. 
Let's start with the life of Pascal Beverly Randolph, okay? He is the embodiment of Citronitis, okay? Taking the, or literally coagulating the bloodlines of the 12 tribes of Israel into the Gothic Slavs to make it a solar being that is purified of Negrito. Negrito, this is how you would alchemically articulate this, this thing, okay? And Pascal Beverly Randolph, he's the embodiment of it. And this is where we get into the squares and the diamonds, okay? Where a square is a quadroon, someone who is one quarter indigenous blood, right? And a square, ah, a square was okay, but what you really wanted was the diamond, the one eighth. Okay, and I go in depth in this in the great mystery of Philadelphia, but this is why, like when you study enslavement, the most valuable human in the enslavement market of the Maafa of Americas was not the strong black buck that would work the field, the image they give, right? It was the golden woman, Aurora, She's known by many names in their alchemical circles, right? One being Aurora. She, Aurora, particularly this is where you can study enslavement in New Orleans, okay? And the uh, octoroon balls, where the squares would be up, you know how like they would say the squares of a party would stand against the wall, like you're a square, you're an L7. That comes out of this thing where the squares, the quadrums, you know, they might've been a little more melanated. Uh, you know, you'd have to, to get a diamond, you'd have to uh, whittle, you'd have to, you know, put her, make her the, like treat her like the philosopher's stone and polish her down another generation to make her a diamond, one eighth, right? An octoroon, make her an Octavia or an Octavius, right? So Pascal Beverly Randolph, who is known historically as, they say he's the first Rosicrucian. You know, if you, you study some Rosicrucian historic history, they'll say this man established the early, earliest known Rosicrucian order in the United States. Now, if you remember Ephrata, they didn't mention no rosy cross at Ephrata, even though within esoteric research by members of the rosy cross, they recognize Bezel, they recognize uh, Kelp, right? But, and the, what do you say, surface history of the rosy cross, this Octavius, this Octoroon, Pascal Beverly Randolph, now, he's definitely founder of the Order of the Golden Dawn of the Rosy Cross. And here's this Golden Dawn. This is what I'm saying. This is tied in with the Citronitis. Okay, he's the embodiment of Citronitis. Spirit of Enterprise on Kelly Drive is also another embodiment of this alchemical process where when you look at it from this angle, what you see is a giant. Well, let me just show you that from this angle, you got a giant Nephilim, right? 
with a giant penis, giant erect penis with seed represented by like that scaly looking thing coming directly out of his loins, coming up to the tip of the penis and then ejaculating as an eagle. All right. But when you look at it from this side, it's a Lenape on his back, subdued, upholding the giant by his genitals, by his arms, and his legs are holding the eagle. The giant is holding a cadasis. We know the cadasis is like the staff of Imhotep that has two intertwined serpents. Two intertwined serpents rep represent DNA. When the serpents have left the staff, one is wrapped around the Lenape. Those are those two bulges you see around his stomach. The other is wrapped around the giant. You see the serpent wrapped around him on this side also, you know? And so this is about coagulating them bloodlines, mixing the DNA to make this. And you see he's in Scout's pose, so he's got the native spirit, okay? So... This is by the same sculptor, Jock, Jock Lipschitz, who made Prometheus strangling the vulture. All right, so yeah, man. And then right, Rubido, now this go ties in with that rep, this reparation thing, okay? I'm just gonna say this. If reparations is tied in to you having to legally claim the identity and birthright status of an African descendant of slave or ADOS, right? They're gonna give you, right? Money will probably be electronic and digital by this time. So all it'll be is some quantum value that they assign, right? That could change at the push of a button. And you have to, say I'm an African descendant of, of a slave to get some reparation and you consciously and willingly do it, you are fulfilling the last stage of Rubido for them using your own free will. Because they already are the more man in Utah. This also explains another why is the largest, just asking this question, and showing you it's all tied into this. I'm not making this shit up. Why is the largest genealogical database in the world in Utah, headquarters of the Mormon? Meditate on that. Okay. So can I say something real quick on the Mormon? Please, Mike, please. So and, and putting that in context with um the the Mormon history, which says Joseph Smith was baptized. Joseph Smith the Susquehanna. in the Susquehanna, <laughs> exactly 222 years and two days from the said establishment of the Jamestown colony. Wow. Here we go, man. Thank you for yeah. that. We got the two, two, twos on the four, four, four. Yeah, man. And look, what's the latest addition to the Ben Franklin Parkway, which, you know, it ain't no random architecture going up on the Ben Franklin Parkway. Mormon tabernacle okay so and that's i would say the most mysterious if you will and striking building you see on 495 right you know where the the, the oh we're going to dc that's a, like right. it, it like, overshadows the the circle of dc yes it, it 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 i mean 
I haven't been there for, for a long time, but I grew up in the area. And I remember every time we would drive around, I'm like, what the hell was that? What is that castle which is overshadowing the, the, the trees? Yeah, so that's what it is. That's, you know, and I know I went real quick. It was like a quick summary. But again, this is what I get into in the great mystery Philadelphia in, deep, in depth, you know. Uh, Jacob Boheme is a big part of this equation coming out of Bohemia. You know, this is the nexus of Bohemian Grove. Like when you overstand this, when you overstand the magnum opus can accurately decode the alchemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz, know those karmic historic causes that the Order of Rosie Cross say they gently influence. This is, you know, this is who they are. This is the magnum opus, you know? And to, to like speak on those earlier questions I raised, like is the enemy an enemy or is it enemy? How do you, when omniversal law and your own free will and your own decision-making has been used against you, who do you ultimately have to hold responsible and accountable and how ultimately do you have to address it wow. like we want to say who are these cats in prophecy they're the deceivers of the nations these are who these cats are in, in prophecy the deceivers of the nations so how do you transcend the deception one first you got to get out of your emotions and the way you do that is you got to heal the trauma associated through that whatever nationhood identity got you in a victim villain mode you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because right if you follow the karmic line you, you know look at have the historical lens that this four, 400 years has the opportunity to like let us look through you know what i'm saying you mm -hmm. can see your responsibility or your bloodline's responsibility where we made fatal decisions whether we were uh silently influenced to make it or not you know what i'm saying if we want to if we want to change the dynamic we have to accept responsibility you know what i'm saying because ultimately yeah. we are responsible for our and our bloodlines decisions actions you know what i mean so we got to get out of our emotions get out of the oh you black oh you white uh this is my land oh this like get out of that because it's not serving it's a stay it, it it actually is what keeps you stuck in their magic locked in their magic right so we got to heal that trauma then get the lens of where our responsibility accountability lays and do your best to be that one in your bloodline to bring to bring y'all into that redemptive timeline here we go this is what you know what i mean this is you know when you talk about the redemptive timeline this this is what it's about you know uh 
being able to transcend and transmute the manipulation of the deceivers of the nation. Do you think that, I mean, I mean, this is, so this is your personal opinion, but I'm really interested. So is, is your opinion that like, if we're alive right now, regardless of where, whom you are, like you're born into this, into this comedy of, of errors, uh, you know, this, 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 this situation, we're all involved with it. We all got skin in the game. We all got skin in the game. We all was playing ball, bruh. Yeah. We all was yeah. playing ball. Yeah. We all yeah. was playing ball. And that's that A, it, you know, it all comes down to the ball game, you know? We And that's, you know, prophecy. That's really what a big chunk of the Old Testament was about. Telling Israel, stop playing ball. Stop playing ball, you know? Don't make ball your God. Let universal law and, you know, the sub-law of abundance that, you know, nature, return to your Edenic state, man. Just tap into the abundance of nature. Stop all this trading mercantile, uh, planting flags mm -hmm. and flying under banners mm -hmm. this is again this deceiver of the nations ball is the you know this whole when you take flag bearing back to its roots and mercantile law and the roots of it is the the tribes playing ball yeah yeah and it's i, I want to like tie this back into like where we started with like our our effort to trip and there were two parts of it there was the the part where we went to the cloister and then there was the part where we went to the farm and i think that particularly in 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 hind looking at it through the lens which you just painted for us the the, the perspective which we were just given we can see at the very least as it relates to the cloister, like there was a, you know, it was an operation. It was an operation with lots and lots of layers and it created something. So there's that. So there's this part of it of, of us going and walking in that, in that particular, um, you know, environment to go and put our feet in the same building where, where the feet of the, the other people were, who were in that, in, in those structures, you know, assuming they're the same structures. Uh, but then the flip side was that of the farm. And so here we have, and this was one of these things about quit playing, playing ball was like how we, how, um, how the, the farm, that home, that family was opened up to all of us. I don't know, Andre. Andre doesn't know you. He 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 opened it up to me, to you, to your queen, to my queen, to our friends. They showed us their history. You know, they showed us all of the special spots. There are two spots I want to point out, which which were important to me uh, on what we saw. But like that's part of like when you talk about that kind of redemptive sort of 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 like you know moving from that just being uh, uh, an idea to like, well, what does the practice look like? It's just like the practice of being human and being kind and being open and, and, and sharing what's yours, uh, you know, or what you have access or control over. So there are two things which really struck me as significant in uh, that, that tour, uh, and both of them were trees. The first one was when their oldest house 
uh, the oldest building on that property, there was a tree, which a uh, sycamore, which was said to be, uh, they said at least 200 years old. It was probably like 30 feet away from the front door. And he's like, this tree has been part of the family for 10 generations. And we've, we've, we've the chill, every child has been underneath this tree with shade during the summer. And like that, and that power of the tree and what the sit and what the tree is symbolically. And one of the things which I like to get into is like, what actually is a tree? But then he made reference to something. I don't know if you if you heard this, but this this is in complementary to a conversation which occurred at the second Wissahickon Wellness Walk with um, I don't remember I don't remember his name, um, but he was talking about trees when we went to uh, that oh, yes. one park. No, the brother about the you're talking about, yes. And he was talking about the wisdom tree. He was talking about the wisdom tree, and like I kind of knew what he was talking about. I'm like, tell me what you mean by wisdom tree. What does that mean to you? And he was telling me about the wisdom tree. Andre said on his property was was a grandfather tree. It's like on the wooded part. He said they had 90 acres, which is wooded, which has not changed since it's been in the family. Uh, it has not been deforested. It has not been turned into agricultural lands. It was just left in the way it was a land which uh, upwards of 10,000 people were living prior to, you know, the colonization of what we're now calling Pennsylvania. He said that there is a grandfather tree. So the first question I asked him, I'm like, what the hell is a grandfather tree? You know, I got a sense of what what that is, but I want to hear him tell me. And so what he said was he he more or less he described it. And he's like, there's one grand hunt, grandfather tree for every 200 square miles. I'm like, all right. And then secondly, I'm like, well, how do you know? How do you recognize? He's that he said the only way we know this is through family lore. And this goes back to the teachings or the, the interactions between his original family with the people who are also living in that area at the at, in the 1700s. And they said this is the grandfather tree. And that had been passed down over and over. So we did not get an opportunity to see that when um when we took our tour, but uh, Andre said he'll be happy to show it to us like on another time. But though it, it is this type of, of, to me, what speaks very, very loudly during, as we become aware of, of everything during this 400, the conclusion of this 400 year period is like all of these other knowings which the human family seemed to have had prior to playing ball, that it was a completely different set of ways of, of, of navigating life. Definitely. Definitely. Man, yeah, this, I just tell you, I'm, I'm still processing, bro. I'm still processing. And I had a lot to process at the Fry Farm, definitely. And I do feel that the brothers that invited us are doing their best to be on their redemptive timeline. You know? Yeah, so... I think we all are, right? I think we all are, man. If you're tuning into this, hopefully you are. Yeah, so, and, and I'll say one, two, one last thing before we wrap up. Like sure. you, you mentioned something about the important, like it starts with 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 the emotional body and like maybe being disconnected to the, at least emotionally disconnected from the story which we've been told ourselves. Like we all got a story which we tell. Uh, but but there's this, this, in my opinion, there's a real important power within the emotional body. So the first thing is like what you said is like taking on responsibility, whatever each person's responsibility, that's for each individual to define. Um, but then also the, 
I don't know if the word, uh, the, the, the appreciation, like, yeah, you've got your own responsibility and that's going to be difficult for each individual, but then recognizing that we support each other. It's like, you know what, each one of us has our own, our own, you know, as they say, cross to bear and the, the, the empathy slash compassion of recognizing they're doing the best they can. And they're, as they're taking on the responsibility. So it's like what we carry, what we have to face within ourselves when we look in the mirror, but then also how we look at everyone else as they're doing their own thing. I think that's very important at this time, or at least that's important to me. Yes, sir. Wow. Yeah, man. So, right, we even got more coming because y'all got a 10.5. We knew not to put all everything in one episode we'd have you here way past your bedtime so look out for 10.5 where we just run the footage of mystic Ephrata as well as uh my last wissahick and wellness walk where we went to i took them to the tadiskan statue to the grandmother's council rock bro hmm. and well the first thing i learned is i gotta go there more often i hadn't been there in a little over a year, man, I gotta, I gotta go there more often, but we definitely un unraveled some more mysteries of the queen and how the queens hold the key. So be able to check that out, check that out in 10.5 as well, you know? All right. All right, man. Yo, I've been getting great feedback from different ones about this. I think I'm shadow banned because when I'm even as I'm moving through Philly now, people are like, yo, Ross Ben, like, yo, that Mystics of the 40, it's hot. I'm following it. I'm loving it. Like it's 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 uh momentum moving with it, man. And and we're activating different ones. You know, that's what they were telling me. Like they're getting activated, they're having a different relationship to the earth and them, you know, themselves by the information we're sharing. So yeah, man, give thanks. All right. I said I was going to say only one last thing. But I'm going to tell you one last story, then we can wrap this up because it's Please. funny. And I'm, I'm going to tell you this story because you because of the shirt I'm wearing. All oh, right. See the shirt I'm wearing like it's, yeah. like it's a nice shirt. Right. 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 So this is like a couple weeks. Like I'm particular. I'm particular about what I put on my body. I like to look stylish and I'm and 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 I I'm, I'm very particular. And so it's come the summertime. I was like, you know what? I need something to wear, you know, something that looks nice in the summertime. And I was looking on this one particular place where I like to acquire clothing. And I'm like, mm, I'm not going to spend that type of money. But if I was going to spend my type of money, this would be the shirt I was going to buy. But I did get another shirt from this place. So this is like, this is, uh, this is the first week of June. So I ordered a shirt. I ordered a shirt. And this first week of June is one week after we released our video with Hood Mystic, which is Mr. Columbus, right? So after I ordered just a T-shirt from this place, uh, when it arrived in my, uh, in my uh, uh, mailbox, and when I arrived in my mailbox, I saw there were two packages. And both packages were addressed to me. And in the other package is this shirt, literally the shirt I was looking at. I didn't buy this shirt, but it was, it was in that other package. And I opened it up and it was exactly my size. It fits me like a glove. I don't know if you could tell, you could figure out uh, if you could tell that by just looking on the screen. But what I have right here, I think I have it with me right Right here is um, there was supposedly there was supposedly a mix up in the distribution of of um, 
of the uh, of the uh, uh, the the shirt ordering, and this one, the shirt which came to me, it was all taken care. Of, it was all fixed. It was all fixed by the company. But the shirt that was came, that came to me, it was actually I don't know if you can read this here, but the guy I was supposed to go to was in Columbus, Ohio. Hmm. And I looked at the address. His house looked exactly like mine. This is following immediately after, immediately after looking at, like doing our Columbus, our Columbus edition. And so the reason why I'm telling you this, the reason why I'm sharing this is there is, and we've talked about this, you and I, in, in exchanging some emails, like there is even in like these subtle, like seemingly insignificant ways, like a shirt, but there seems to be a feedback loop <laughs> from this material universe which is like yeah you guys you're not playing ball the way like it's we're, we're, we're playing something but we're playing we're ballers. a different perspective some people play ball but we're ballers there we go there we go yeah, man, there we yo go. you do have to tell them that elsa synchronicity man the other one all right we'll the do elsa, that. So then, like on El yeah you got to that, so is that i think that's what you're speaking to it's the exact same thing every time we do one of these shows one of these crazy things show up so the last show we did the last show we did was the the queen and i did that correspondence between queen esther to the elsa character in um in disney frozen 2 and she was a princess so she was an implied future queen elsa Two days after we recorded that, there was a name storm in the uh, in the coming out of the Caribbean, and the name was Elsa. So that like came two days after we did the recording, and so and that storm, which was supposedly going to be real damaging, ended up being nothing. But we keep on having like the and this is and I guess maybe this is where I'm going with this, and this has to deal with like the 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 mystery of what actually we're experiencing. But it's seemingly the very act of bringing to light all of this sort of stuff which was done in the backdrop done in the backdrop in like whether that's in family lines whether that's in personal lines whether that's in cultural lines um but it is like one we're getting like kind of this smile wink i look at it as a wink back from the omniverse and it's treating us in in a way which we can't miss it but in a way to encourage us to keep on doing what we're doing and that includes not just me and you but everyone who's participating everyone tuning in this in. redemption yeah. timeline yeah man on that note <laughs> we're gonna seal it up all right? all right salute bro from one mystic to another from one mystic to another all right peace